So welcome to today's podcast. Today we are interviewing a very special guest, famous comedian from Los Angeles, writer as well, featured on Jimmy Kimmel, Menachem Silverstein. Hey, thanks for having me. What's up, Menachem? Doing pretty well. How are you guys? How are you guys holding up in New York? Oh, New York, right? Yeah, I mean, I, oh, cool. I hope so. Yeah, we're in New York. <laughs> Last you checked. Yeah. So how's LA doing? It's funny, LA's actually been a little bit cold lately, which is weird. It actually rained this circus. So like in growing up in Crown Heights, it would rain every circus. And then I came out to LA and I would never see rain. And then this year it rained for five minutes. And it was kind of weird. It was only five minutes, light rain, but we had rain on circus in LA. All right. So let's just start off. So what I want to ask you is, is how did you get into the writing world? So I got into writing, uh, funny enough, from camp. So I was a camp counselor in um, Gondestrol, Marstown. And I would write the newsletter. So basically nobody wanted to write the newsletter and they had to make one. And I looked at the rabbi and I said, I will write it as long as it's not edited. Like I can write whatever I want. And he said, sure. So I would just make like these kind of ridiculous fake interviews and I'd make like origin stories for the counselors and stuff like that. And it went really well and people really liked it. And like one week we missed one and then we got like kids and parents were like, where's the newsletter? And I was like, oh, this is fun. So then about a year and a half later, I kind of thought about it and I was like, people write for a living. Like it's a job. It's a hard job to get, but it is a job and people make money doing it. Why not try? And then I wrote my first script and it went well. And then from there. And then after that, like at what age did you decide to actually say, you know, I actually want to do this for Hollywood because when you do it in camp, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. You know, like it's a hobby. Like I was learning director, but I'm not going to be a Mashpian Yeshiva or something. You know. (laughs) So when did you actually decide like, yeah, this can actually go from something fun to like a profession, a profession, like a reality that uh, that you're going to live for the rest of your life. Technically, hopefully. Hopefully. Well, hopefully I will live for the rest of my life. Yeah. By definition, I should be living for the rest of my life. Um, If that messes up, I've done something terribly, terribly wrong. Basically. So what happened was I wrote for camp and it was really fun. And then I kind of like would write as a hobby, but not really do it professionally. And then I finished yeshiva. And my parents were kind of pushing me to go to law school. And I was studying for my LSAT, and which is the entry exam to get into law school. And I hated it. I hated it so much that I wrote a script. So I was like, to avoid studying for my LSAT, I wrote a script. Why did your parents and want you to it. study for the LSAT? Just curious. Do you have like lawyers in your family? Is your dad a lawyer or something? No, my parents needed the checklist. So my brother's <laughs> becoming a doctor. I have a brother that's a physicist, and they're like, oh, we need someone to be a lawyer. It's going to be monopoly. Yeah. No, my, my mother, like any you know G- good Jewish mother, so my parents are both shriva, so they were just worried that I wouldn't be able to make a living. They were mm-hmm. like, okay, Menachem, he finishes yeshiva. What's he going to do? How is he going to support you know a family, kids, everything? Uh, so my parents were like, oh, you're smart. You can be a lawyer. Go to law school. And to me, I guess like I could have done it, but it just was kind of boring to me. And I'm like, oh, it's... Like, I don't want this to be the rest of my life. So again, to like avoid studying, I would go to a coffee shop and call my friend who lived in Florida and we wrote a script together. And then when I finished the script, I was like, you know, like we can really do this. Like it read well, I got to show it to some people. And then I decided I'm gonna start doing that. And I started pursuing it. And then I got engaged and managers in LA. So I was like, okay, I'll start pursuing this full time. Was it something that like scared you? I mean, just from studying from your LSAT to just being like, that's it. I'm going to give up my life and just start into writing. Right. Yeah. I'm saying it was like giving up that version of the life and starting it. I kind of, I, I just thought to myself, like it was something that I always wanted to do. Like I always wanted to do comedy. I always wanted to do writing. When I was younger, I didn't do comedy because I was like, nobody wants like an Orthodox Jew on stage. Like that doesn't, I don't know, like that seems weird. And again, like writing for TV, like when I, I remember when I was, um, 12 my friend asked me what i wanted to do when i was older and i said i want to write movies and he's like what are you talking about jews don't write movies are you crazy orthodox jews don't write movies that's insane and i looked at him i was like but you watch movies and he's like watching movies and writing movies is a very different thing and it's funny now he's super supportive and he's read a bunch of my scripts and he likes my writing and he supports me and i actually brought it up to him a year ago i was like you traumatized me and made me think i couldn't do it and he's like didn't even remember that for me it's like a hallmark in my life it was definitely weird because like you guys come from the same community that I grew up in. How many television writers do you know? How None. many comedians do you know? Yeah, I was saying it's not like a normal, it's not a normal path, it's not a normal thing to do. But to me, it was like, what I always learned in Terra 
when you want to give a carbon, you give from your best. You don't just find the cow that's dying and then go and bring it. It says you are supposed to kind of give the world, give God, give everyone from your best. So I kind of thought to myself and I'm like, I can tell stories. I can write scripts. I can make people laugh. Why should I be a lawyer? Mm-hmm. And then I just kind of threw myself into it. So, I mean, there obviously like a, seemed like there was a lot of people doubting you. And I mean, you are an Orthodox Jew. Becoming a writer was probably very difficult. How did you deal with the uh, criticism you were getting and stuff like that? Well, I'll tell you what's actually funny. What helped me through that was I was in a band when I was younger. I don't even know if you guys remember this. or if you I actually do. Myself. The Night Owls, of course. <laughs> and then I was the Night Owls. I managed the band, helped write the music, and I rapped in the band. You oh, can imagine that's... how white the band was. So, so what happened was, with, like, with the music, I decided I wanted to get into music. And, you know, like, start a band. And I kind of, like, everyone was like, you're going to be rapping? Like, this was in, like, Montesio was out there, but he was, like, looked upon as, like, oh, Montesio, the, like, guy, he's basically not religious. Even though he was religious at the time. So for me to be, like, rapping in a band, everyone kind of prepared me, like, People are going to hate this. People are going to hate you. People are going to rip on you. All my friends were like, we like the music, but you shouldn't put it out. And then I put it out anyways, and the feedback was actually very good. Like once, basically, it's, it's kind of funny how like, if you're not successful, everyone makes fun of it. Second, there's like, at least a little bit of success. People are all of a sudden like, oh, wow, you're cool. So we put out our first song and it got 35,000 views on YouTube, which at the time was a lot. And then like we right away got invited to open up for like Moshe Heft and, and uh, Soul Farm. And then we performed with Moshav and stuff. So we were kind of like getting legitimate concerts. So people didn't really hate on it and rip on it as much. Like even Yeshiva, my like Rosh Yeshiva came over to me and my cover son like made a comment about the there. Like, oh, I see you're on time to Chassidus, even though you're a night owl and walked away. And I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Like he knows, he knows. So I think like that really helped prepare me because like, Yes, there was some hate for me, you know, like as an Orthodox Jew rapping and writing like hip hop, you know, pop, hip hop, rock music. But yeah, that definitely kind of prepared me. And again, I think that it with the comedy and nobody took it seriously until things happened. Everyone was like, of course, you're going to go and make it in Hollywood. And then like I started accomplishing things and everyone was like, oh, wow, he's really doing it. So out of curiosity, between the phase where everyone was ripping on you to you actually succeeding. There's like that space over there where you probably doubted yourself, right? A little bit. I doubt myself every day. (laughs) It's a very hard business. We can get into that after. So I think that it was kind of like a nice, for me, it was a little bit gradual and nice because basically what happened was I started writing. And at the time when I like originally started writing, again, I was like, studying for my LSAT and I was tutoring and I had traverses every day and I was like just out of yeshiva. So in that like year you're out of yeshiva, no one really judges what you do. And I wasn't really telling people besides for my friends that I was like striving to be a writer. And at that point I was writing my first script and I really wasn't like actively striving as much as I should have in hindsight. And then after that I got married. And then again, it's usually like the first year of marriage. There's also that little bit of leeway. Like you can figure yourself out. A lot of people go to Kylo. A lot of people's, you know, parents or in-laws support them. But you know what I mean? So there, there is that like in-between time. So I kind of was lucky to have those two years. And I kind of came out of the like year and a half of marriage getting Jimmy Kimmel. How did you so, get Jimmy? So like long, long story. It ended up, long story short, it stemmed from me being a dancing rabbi on uh, the Chabad Telephone. Mm. And then they kind of wanted Chabad rabbis for a sketch. And then they found out that I was a writer and they brought on, brought us on. I ended up getting to be with some friends. I ended up helping to like adjust the writing of the script because, you know, they knew about Jews, but not completely. And then like Guillermo doesn't speak English, let alone Yiddish or Hebrew. So I ended up helping write, writing his lines and giving him his lines. So it was a very, very cool experience to kind of like work for Jimmy Kimmel. But the second I was like on like TV, like I was on national TV. Like that was kind of, you know, a big deal. Like strangers would come over to my mother and be like, your son was on television and it was on like COL and stuff. So that kind of solidified like, oh, wow, this guy's actually doing it. So that happened around Hanukkah time. That summer, I was in a sketch with King Batch, mm. which is he's a very big like, you know, YouTube Vine guy. And he's awesome. And a friend of mine. So the second I was like in a video with him, it then again, just like, reaffirm myself as like oh this guy's actually legit he's not just going and saying he's going to do things he's doing things mm-hmm. sorry for just talking so much oh my gosh this no, is what the, 
good. Okay, we hope well, hopefully people like me enough to hear me just go on and on and on. Otherwise, we're in trouble. So, how did you make the transition into from writing out writing sketches into making shorts on Instagram, which by the way are hilarious. If you guys have not checked it out, go check it out. I just figured out today that Tide Pods are kosher because of Menachem. So seriously, check <laughs> it out. Thank you. It was that was kind of the the King Batch thing. So at the time I was, I was lucky enough that I got a job writing sketches for TBS digital. So TBS, they made Conan and a bunch of other shows. And basically, so I, I had the experience of writing sketches, but those were always like longer sketches. They were like four or five minutes, three to five minute sketches. And then King Batch, we ended up meeting because he was working on a TBS show. I was working with TBS. So we ended up becoming friends and he asked me if I could be in a sketch with him. And to me, I always like at that point, I was just getting into the filmmaking end of it. I was really more still on the writing end. And he basically showed me how you can like film a sketch so easily on your phone and you can just edit it right there on iMovie. Mm -hmm. And like the second I saw, I was like, whoa, that's so, it's such an easy skill to acquire. If you look at my sketches, they slowly got like better. Cause as I learned how to like, how to film a little better, how to edit better, how to add the music and all those kind of things, it definitely got better. But yeah, that was kind of the initial like, oh, it's easy and I can do that. And that actually helped me also like form a production company. And now I produce like commercials and product videos and web series and shorts for other people, nice. like on a higher, bigger budget. Nice. Each writer has their own interesting way of expressing themselves in their writing. So where do you find your personal expression in your writing? So I think my personal expression is a couple things. So firstly, like I said, my parents um, weren't raised religious and became religious later. So my grandmother was very worried. They're like, oh, these kids are going to be like weird Orthodox Jewish kids. So she would basically record television on cassettes and mail it to us so we could have some TV and have some outside influence. My parents were worried and didn't want us to watch like modern day, like Disney Channel, Nickelodeon, et cetera. So what she would record are really old shows like Gilligan's Island, Bewitched, Get Smart, all the old shows. My comedy kind of was like in heavily influenced by like older television mm -hmm. and then also kind of like being influenced by older television and then growing up without so much like outside influence entertainment and being part of the orthodox community and then later on as like the access to disney channel and all those things got easier when the internet was just you know like more accessible i would then have that as well so i think that it's you know like having some influence and then being held back from influence and then finding the influence later that kind of helped uh, form my you know unique perspective on situations in comedy mm, nice interesting and how does that like come out in your writing like what's special in your writing like what's different in your writing than everyone else that they say you know Menachem's good let's keep him on because he is unique and special so yeah I think it's like it's hard to describe it because it's easier to to like show you through my writing but it's just kind of like a very unique comedic voice like, again, because I have that older influence and the more conservative, like, orthodox influence, my shows tend not to be dirty. So without having to, like, make dirty jokes, like, I'm able to stay funny. And that's definitely something that kind of, like, keeps my comedy open. Like, when somebody wants to hire me on a kid, like, somebody can hire me on a kid's show and can hire me on an adult show because it's just funny it, and it doesn't have to be, like, dirty. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I've actually seen you a few times, I believe three times on The Laugh Factory. I'm very big fan. Uh, and yeah, that was crazy that I got that. So what was like that whole thing? Like I know the like a lot of performers get very nervous when performing in front of crowds. Like they're trying out new material and they get very worried and like anxious because they're trying out new material. They have no idea how it's going to go with the crowd. How do you deal with that? I would be lying if I said I wasn't nervous every single time. What happens is you're always nervous and the best thing is to practice and kind of rely Basically, when it comes to comedy and being funny, you want to be funny and your strong jokes are your safety net. So you're out there to kind of give people a unique experience and, and, and make people laugh. But what you want to have is like jokes that you know work. So if people aren't really reacting to you and people aren't really reacting to your energy or your new stuff, you can always just throw in jokes that you know that'll hit because the second you get the audience to laugh, they're on your side. Because mostly like it, it, it's kind of a very funny thing when it comes to comedy. When you're a younger comic and you're not good, the only shows you really get are like very small shows late at night in front of people that don't care to hear comedy or other comedians. And it's so hard to make those people laugh. 
as you get better, you go to crowds that have paid money to see you and just want to laugh because they paid for drinks, they paid for the tickets, and they want to laugh. And then like when you get even bigger and you do stadiums, people paid hundreds of dollars for the tickets and even more for food. So it's kind of funny how like it gets harder when it's when it's bigger shows because the pressure is on, but also the audiences are a hundred times better. Mm. That's literally like saying like, if you suck, then everything you do will suck. But the better you get, yeah, the better it gets. Like the better the result that you create through your comedy. So it's sort of like a win-win situation. Yeah. Way. So it's, but it's also like the biggest deterrent because like you'll go in front of the small shows and you'll never be able to get past the small shows and you'll just give up. But what you don't know is like, it's like right on the other side. If you can get one good show, you'll see that it's like worth going through the bad shows to get those shows. What was your belief that you told yourself that like when you were about to give up and say like, you know, I'm doing all these small shows and these suck. What was that continuous belief that you kept telling yourself, that you kept pushing yourself and then when you got that big show or the bigger show, how did you feel? So it was kind of this. I always, I always believed that I could do it. And then there's a couple things. So first off, there's like throughout the way, you know, kind of different people tell me that I can do it and people that I believe in. So basically, like long story short, what really pushed me to do comedy. So at the beginning, I didn't really want to do comedy because it was something that I loved, but I'm like, nobody wants to see an Orthodox Jew do it. So back when I was in Cronites, I'd go to Manhattan and I'd do small little open mics and I'd like, you know, kind of, I have old journals from like when I was younger and I'd write stand-up bits. They're not good, but I wrote them down in pencil and bad yeshiva handwriting. And then what happened was I had the opportunity to pitch a show with a very funny Indian comic. She's actually Indian and Jewish. And we got to pitch a show to Amazon and it was kind of like about stand-up comedy. And it was about these kind of like misfit group of comedians who get a special. And when I was pitching it, the lady I was pitching it to was like, because this girl that I was pitching it with that I wrote it with, she was one of the comedians. And the producer looked at me and she was like, and you'll be one of the comedians, right? An Orthodox Jew doing stand-up comedy, that's hilarious. And I was like, of course. And then the show was kind of started moving forward. And there was a chance I was going to get to play myself in the show. And right away, I was like, oh, my gosh, like, I can't just like dabble in comedy. I need to do stand up comedy because like, first off, this lady thinks it's hilarious. This lady believes in me. And like, if I want the chance and opportunity to do it, it's either like step up or not. So I had kind of that choice to like either go all in or let it go. So that kind of pushed me to like go all in. And then I was like lucky enough that just like the results spoke for themselves where I started off doing those like kind of like bad shows and it quickly escalated getting better shows and then very funny story about the laugh factory which is basically so i'm i'm the first like hasidic jew to become a regular at the laugh factory so like the only like orthodox jews to be regulars at the laugh factory are like me and alon gold so it's kind of like it's a crazy thing like i'll just kind of explain not to like pat myself on the back but just explain like the how amazing god is and how crazy it is so they're the Laugh Factory is top three comedy clubs in the world. Not the country, the world, okay? And the three biggest in LA are the Comedy Store, the Improv, and the Laugh Factory. The Comedy Store has three rooms. So let's say each room has between eight and 15 comics a night. So you have three rooms with that. The Improv has two rooms. The Laugh Factory has one room. So there's literally like, and the Laugh Factory doesn't have as big shows. Like at the Comedy Store, the smaller rooms tend to have bigger, tend to have like a lot more comics you're really like at the Laugh Factory, there are like six to eight comedians a night. So there's like the competition there is really, really, really fierce. And I, I was working really hard. And thanks to my actually writing partner and comedy mentor, Tehran Bengasri, if you haven't seen him, black, Persian, Muslim, Jewish, he's literally everything. Muslim on his dad's side. So the Muslims go according to his dad. So Muslims consider him Muslim. His mother is black and Jewish. So according to Jews, he's Jewish. It's literally like for comedy it's the best he's the most diverse person but he basically gave me the opportunity to get up and from the laugh factory and i was like there every other month like again like i would i would just like kind of occasionally go and showcase and i looked at him one night he was at my house and i said i'm like i'm going to open up for you every night and he said i'm like eventually i'm gonna open up for you every night and he looked at me and laughed and is like 
like that's not going to happen like you know like he was happy to keep putting me up you know every other month or whatever it was but he's like that's never going to happen and then on Rosh Hashanah of la- like right before COVID it was Rosh Hashanah and I was like oh, I really need like a boost in my career what could I do I'm like I wish I had somebody to like learn Tanya with I would do Tanya every day so I'm speaking I tell this to a friend of mine who's not religious okay so I'm sitting with a friend he's not religious he's like friendly with Chabad but not religious at all and I tell him, I'm like, oh, I wish I had somebody to do Tanya with. Maybe that could give me the boost. And he's like, I'll do Tanya with you every day. And I'm like, really? And he's like, yeah, call me. I'll learn Tanya with you. And I was like, sure. So we did Tanya that day. And the next morning we did Tanya. And this was like two months after I told Toronto I was going to open up from every um, day, like every time he does a show. And I get a call from Toronto that basically there was like a manager at the Laugh Factory who was kind of like being a little bit jerky to him. And Tehran like, you know, kind of like asserted himself and was like, listen, I've been here longer than you. You know, you can't like bully me. Like this is what's going to happen. And Menachem is going to open up for me every Monday night. And I had done a sketch with this girl, Vanessa Johnson. She's a comedian. And he's like, oh, is that the guy who did the sketch with Vanessa? Because he didn't follow me, but he followed her and saw the sketch that I wrote. And Tron's like, yeah, he's the guy that did the sketch with Vanessa. And he's like, okay, he can open up for you every Monday night. And then I had become, I became a regular at the Laugh Factory, which is again, like kind of, you know, this like huge, it, at least I'm saying everyone could, you know, uh, decide on their own. But for me, it was this kind of huge mountain that I could never really like, you know, I always wanted to climb, but I never saw myself climb. I even like that year I did a vision board. I never do vision boards, but I, I wrote it like that I'd be a regular at the Laugh Factory. And then like, for a few months um i got to do that until COVID hit and then now everything's you know like kind of slowly coming back and things but yeah so thanks to tanya wow that's insane like you had a vision and you said it and you weren't afraid to say it and lo and behold it became a reality that's yeah, insane thank God. pretty i i think that it's like one thing that's kind of very funny to me is i feel like i'm doing the right thing and like, you know, kind of doing my mission in life and like what God wants me to do. And people don't always agree with me. Like I actually had somebody that he was like, how dare you wear your la- your yarmulke and sit to the Laugh Factory? How dare you bring your yarmulke and sit to into the Laugh Factory? And I looked at him and I was like, would you rather me like take it off? Like, that's kind of crazy to me. And I obviously didn't listen and I always wear my yarmulke and sit to the Laugh Factory. But it's kind of funny how like Hashem, every time I like consider quitting, I get like kind of some sort of reassurance. You guys mind if I share another kind of quick story? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Okay. Awesome. I love this. Are you guys just letting me talk all the time? I'm going to have to like flip this interview and ask you guys some questions. The first episode Um, that we did was just me and Chaim. You know, we got to get people. You got it out of the way. Okay. Exactly. We got all of our stories out of the way. Now it's your turn. Go. Got it. Okay. Nobody wants to hear your origin story anymore. I bet people still want to have questions. Um, I feel like here I'll, I'll share, but then I get to ask a question at the end. So an interesting, very long story short. I wrote a script that was loosely based on my life called Menachem. And I had the opportunity to submit it to a company called Imagine Entertainment. So I had a producer friend there, loved it and brought it into the company. And basically how the company works is you give it to a script reader because all these producers are very busy. You give it to a script reader. If the script reader likes it, they pass it up to the producers. So what happened was I was like, at the time I had a production company under someone and then it we branched off and I had my own production company and I wasn't getting any jobs, like literally no jobs. And he always said like, if you want, you can come back, but I wouldn't, I'd basically like, instead of having my own company work for him. So it was like a decent job, but I'd like go from like being able to like, now that I had my own company, I would be able to like work out on my, my own schedule and write more and do more comedy and stuff like that. So I leave there, my company's failing, emailing, calling everything cannot close a single job the jobs that i had went out of business like ridiculous stuff and i again had my script submitted and i hadn't heard back in like three months and i decided i'm like you know what like i don't have money coming in i need to just go back and take this guy's job and again this guy's job was gonna be like a nine-to-five job i wouldn't really have that much time to write that much time for comedy anything but i'm like you know what i I have to support my family i'm gonna have to do it so i'm like okay i'm gonna have one more day of writing I'm going to take one more day, I'm going to write scripts, and then the next day I'm going to call him and ask for, and just like come crawling back and say, please just give me any job. I'll take anything. So I 
I see on, on Instagram, a friend of mine went to this coffee shop called Aaron's Coffee Shop in Beverly Hills. And it's like owned by a Jew. So I'm like, you know what? Let me just go there. So I go there and I start working and the coffee's fantastic. And after two hours, I have to move my car because like the parking lot was only two hours. So I got and I moved my car and then I start heading back towards the coffee shop to, you know, work for another few hours. And there's this like probably 24, 25 year old staring me down. And as I get closer, he says, excuse me, are you Menachem Silverstein? And I say, yes. And he's like, well, I work for Imagine Entertainment. I'm a script reader. I just finished your script. I loved it so much. I Googled you. And I can't believe that you're here. And I'm like, I, I like didn't understand. I'm like, what? And he's like, well, Imagine is right there. And he points to like the building right behind the coffee shop is Imagine Entertainment. And oh, I had no wow. idea. So they don't have a massive sign on the front of the building. It's just like, you know what I mean? Like you go inside and you see it. So I had no idea. And then he's like, I love the script. And I passed it up to, you know, the producers. And they're like, in that moment, I was like, I'm doing something right. Like, clearly there's some sort of like, the fact that I walked out and back and he just happened to be there. And the funniest thing was he didn't even go into the coffee shop. He was waiting there for a friend. So like, if I would have left the second earlier or a second later, like I would have missed him. Oh, wow. Like it was literally the perfect moment. And also there are tons of script readers and he's like the one that got my script. So it's just kind of this crazy story. That script ended up the producer who submitted it was let go. So anytime a producer's let go, all the projects are let go with them, mm-hmm. even if they like them. So it's kind of like an annoying thing. So that project as of now is on hold. But yeah, so like, thank God, a lot of different stories like that have happened, like the Tanya one and this one, where it seems like I'm doing something right. That's amazing. That is just really incredible. I mean, I feel like I've known you for so long. I think I've known you for over 10 years now. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just so incredible to see how you went from this like yeshiva bacher to this incredible person who's fulfilling his dream. And I, I really admire that. I'm trying to look at you from kid in an after school program to running his own podcast. Photographer extraordinaire. Look at you changing the world. Angry for recovery specialist. Oh, <laughs> we forgot to mention that in the beginning. That's awesome. Yeah. That's really, really awesome. I said he had a question. Malcolm, do you have a question? Oh, yeah, Malcolm, you shoot us for a question. I, this is going to be fun. I have all the questions. So like, I, I'm going to be honest here. I missed the first episode of the podcast. I didn't listen to the first episode of the podcast. I don't know the origin of this. So I know the reason you guys are here, but like what inspired the two of you to get together and do the podcast versus doing your own podcast? Like what made you guys decide that you were going to team up and do this? The dynamic duo. So what happened was last year I was actually featured on the Nishamas podcast. Amazing. And I shared a little bit about my story and so many people just reached out to me saying like, I related to what you were saying. You helped me so much. You opened my eyes. And I thought that was amazing because I honestly did not believe that I would reach so many people or inspire anyone. I thought maybe one person would be like, oh, that's kind of cool. Thank you for the awareness and move on. But I got so much more than that. And then one day Mati was like, Chaim, why don't we do a podcast? And I normally get like so much fear, anxiety and everything when it comes to like these big decisions. But I was just like, let's do this. And I never felt so confident in something. And I was like, let's just do it. It's awesome. And Mati, why did you want to do a podcast? For many, many reasons. Similar to what Chaim said, but also sort of in a way, because I've been through a certain amount of my life and not something too crazy, too traumatic, but there's just so much that I just want to share with the world and just want to give back to the world. This we actually did speak about in the first podcast. Like, I didn't fit in yeshivas. I stuttered as a kid until the age of 14. So at the age of 14, I moved to Israel. And I decided then that I'm not going to stutter anymore. From Crown Heights. From, from Flatbush to Israel at the age of 14. Went straight into yeshiva, all Hebrew-speaking yeshiva. I didn't know. I know, I know like 12 and a half words in Hebrew then. You know, like... Like eight of them were cursed. The other one was like wall, door, and hello. You know, like that's what I knew. So I started imitating. The important ones. Yeah. So I started imitating this old Israeli trio, comedian. They were were a group of comedians that that did sketches. I used to imitate them. And that's how I got over my stutter. And and I I went through all these things in life and a lot of self-consciousness. And then I went on shlichus. And it it was a whole process to get to where I am today. And 
afterwards i was so scared to become a coach and i was so scared to like go out there and help people like officially like who becomes a coach so at one point i did become a coach and i overcame all of those struggles and and all those people telling me no you can't do it. and well that's my personal reason and i think i shared this story i got into coaching and i was by a certain family's house on shabbos and in walked a child with his aunt now this kid he lost his father a couple months before that and he must have been i don't know 14 15 something like that and one of the older kids in the house found on him an isig on shabbos and he come up to me he's like mati do you know what this is um is this uh, is this muksa is this a cigarette does it have nicotine and, and i'm like yeah and i didn't really understand what was going on all of a sudden like, I turn my head and I realize what's going on. There's this kid standing there, 15-year-old kid, with his shoulders slouched and his aunt yelling at him, this this kid yelling at him that he's has this on Shabbos and he can't have it, so we'll keep it here, but no, take it back, no, but don't take... And they're all driving him crazy. And this kid is just standing over there, like, fine, 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 fine. Like, he didn't really care about, like, what they were telling him. Like, fine, you want to do this, you want to do that. He already gave up. You, you see him, he's full of pain, full of hurt. And I'm looking at him, like... This kid just lost his father recently. Everyone is telling him that whatever he's doing is bad. He's trying to belong. He's trying to escape. He's trying to do... Just give the kid a hug. Tell him that he's okay. Someone tell him that you love him. Like, Please, like, do it right now. And I'm just sitting there on the side. I'm like... And everyone's just showing him hate and pain. I'm like... I'm going to stop complaining about these scenarios where you see kids who are literally going through traumatic experiences and I'm actually going to start doing something about it. And that's one of the things that pushed me into coaching... One of the things that pushed me into doing this podcast and also what pushed me to do my pre-dating course. I started a pre-dating course for Israelis. It went off with a hitch. I already have requests to do it again. And I just did it, well, like a month ago, like right before Sukkot. And like, I came to this place where I understand, like, you, know, you see people complaining about the shidduch system. You see people complaining about, about the education system. You see people complaining. I'm like, I am done complaining. I'm going to start doing something about it. I'm, I'm not going to sit on the side and go, yeah, you're right. We should definitely do something about it. So this is one of the reasons why I decided to do the podcast. Can you please not try to fix the shit-up system? I actually have a lot of my stand-up comedy is now around the shit-up system. So if it worked and it was flawless, then I would have nothing to joke about. I have to write a new hour special. What's wrong with you? Please be considerate when fixing things. We're not really trying to fix it. We're trying to make it a, a little less unbearable for some nice people who are actually trying to get married i hear that that's no that's very good no i i think that 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 story is real and that story is you know beautiful and it's nice that you are coming and trying to you know fix it i think that both of us are coming from a different angle and perspective but we're kind of trying to do the same thing where it's like when i was younger and i wanted to be creative there like now you see crown heights has so many more creative outlets but when I was growing up, it was like, nobody had a band. They were just like the few, there was like, you know, Avram Freed, this was before, like, you know, Benny Freeman was like just coming out. Like this was like, you know, it was like Moshe Haft was like the, you know, like the outlier and his music was like so Jewy. And then like when someone like Monticello came out, I was like so inspired. I'm like, oh my gosh, you can like make good music, but also different music. Like he was doing reggae music and it's like, oh, I don't have to express myself. And I did, I did, I did, I did. And if you want to, you could, but like you can find unique expression within what you're doing. And when I brought that up to like different, you know, Russia Shivas and stuff, they were like, what are you talking about? This is terrible. Matisseo's not the example. Ah, he's basically fry. He's taking advantage of being from Blah. And then like the second that he isn't religious anymore, they're like, I told you. And like growing up, like all the, the Ferengans that I went to were always like putting it down. Like I literally had like the biggest mushroom in, you know, like the biggest teachers in Crown Heights and their like entire like thing was just putting down people who were trying, putting down the Montesios, putting down like, you know, describe and wild up and like those people who are really trying to like be creative and be different. So like that's kind of one thing that like, or like even like, you know, the Mendy Collins, I was like looking past those and trying to like do it anyways. And like hopefully through my, you know, Instagram and through, you know, stand up and through some, you know, TV projects that are slowly coming into fruition, we can kind of, you know, change that. And, you know, there are going to be people who are stuck in the past, 
just like when it comes to, you know, like people who lost their father and are lashing out, there will be people who are stuck in the past and say, that's a bad kid. That's a broken kid to get that kid away from my kid. He might ruin him. And, you know, hopefully we can move past that to be like, oh no, that is the kid that we need to hold the closest. Exactly. Because that kid needs it more. And that kid needs the love and needs to be hugged no matter what. And if you show him that you love him no matter what, that's how you're going to get him back at your table. And that's how you're going to inspire him. Because to me, it's so kind of bizarre that especially like in our community, when it comes to getting people, we're good at that. But when it comes to like maintaining the people that we have, it's a very kind of weird and broken system, unfortunately. Mm -hmm, Yeah, But you know, it it actually connects so well to what you said in the beginning when like when you have to give a carbon when you have to give a sacrifice you have to give from your best and a lot of times in the education system in the yeshiva system when it comes to people who are creative or we'll call a little bit out of the box thinkers they sort of associate their best with something that is negative something that is bad that doesn't belong that's not good and they're always in this conflict i want to express myself but 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 i've been told that it's bad so I have to like go back and forth and it drives them insane until they say, you know what, I'm just going to leave the system. I'm just going to, you know, everyone is bad. Everyone is terrible. This is a tyrannical patriarchy that I don't want to be a part of. And they actually, at the end of the day, almost never actually find a way to express themselves at all. Nothing to do with if they're in the system or out of the system. They're just stuck within themselves. So the reason why I think it's a, like, it's unhealthy. It's not because, oh, they're like not becoming from, but because you're simply destroying a world where someone could be so creative and you're not allowing him to be creative. Right. I think that people forget, and it's actually interesting because somebody in California is like pushing this and started putting up like bumper stickers and, and little billboards and like bench billboards and stuff. The people forget that like the basis of Yiddishkeit is that doesn't mean love your fellow Jew. That means love your fellow person. That means to be a good person and being a good person, no matter what is a very important core factor of being a good Jew. And if you can't find it in your heart to love somebody, no matter what, even if they don't agree with you, then you by definition are not the person that you want them to be. If you're like, I'm a perfect Jew. I want them to be a perfect Jew. If you can't love them regardless, then you're showing your, your true colors. Absolutely. And it's like, cause like, even like when I had my band, the only people that like accepted us in the place that we were able to practice was Aaliyah. Like the, the show and like they had the studio. That's where we did it. That was the creative outlet. Like there was no like creative outlet amongst the like good boys and the good yeshivas. It was like our whole band kind of the reason we like justified it was we were a project. It was from guys and non from guys working together on music. Like that was kind of the spiel that got us into the gray area. Like nowadays, I'm saying, thank God, nowadays you have Jericho and Joseph David, and you have so many different music options that are considered Jewish. But like when, you know, we were trying to do it, it was like so limited and it was kind of crazy. I feel like it's a very just like touchy subject because there's so many, so many amazing, talented people out there in our community that are holding themselves back because they're scared of this judgmental factor that comes with it. And it, it's scary because, I mean, look at you. You you just did it and you're doing really well. There could be so many other people that could be doing well and they're just scared based on the judgmental factor that comes in a community. Yeah, 100%. And I think that that's why pushing outside of the box thinkers and pushing creative people, you know, on the community and different creative things, I think is is very important. It's really important to acknowledge the creatives and stuff like that. Because, yeah, you want to you want to give people the outlet and you want to let people know. Because for me, I actually lately, which, which is kind of nice, some principals in some schools in, in New York have been bringing me on to talk to their class about being from and being a creative, which I think is an important thing, again, not for my ego, even though that always helps. Like, I'm a human being, unfortunately. And, you know, there are ego-y things in, in it, unfortunately. But I think that it's just important to see that you can do that. Cause like, I know a lot of people, if somebody wants to be a rock star and they're like, wait a second, there are no from rock stars. I cannot be a from rock star cause I need to be a rock star, but I can't be from. So if I had to give one up, I will gladly give up being religious to be the rock star. And then they will go and do it. And sometimes they'll fail and sometimes they'll succeed. But if you see like 
oh, wow, that can be done. Oh, wow, there is a Monticello. It like, you can be both. It then allows you and expands Yiddishkeit and it actually helps people. I know that back when we went to Yeshiva, you, your parents literally had to sign a paper. We do not have a TV at home. Our kids do not watch television at home in order to get into Yeshiva. And my parents acknowledged it as well. Even though, let's say, according to a lot of people, you shouldn't watch TV. But between you and me, people are watching TV. People love TV. And if that is something that you want to do, I want to help show that you can be from and do it. If you want to be a stand-up comedian, you can do it. And there are actually two people that I'm mentoring now to from people who have reached out and been like, hey, I really want to uh, be a writer. One of them actually just moved out to L.A. And, you know, I've read their scripts and helped them and give them, you know, gave them uh, some tips and, and notes that I didn't get because when I was coming up as like a firm writer, there was no one to reach out to. So there were a lot of like mistakes. Like again, like didn't learn any of the skills of how to become a TV writer in Yeshiva, didn't learn, you know, any of them around our community. So there was a lot of error amongst the way, like what should I focus on? And then now like I've, I'm trying to help forge the path for people to want to. So what advice would you give a creative person right now that's there listening to this Quit. podcast and struggling? <laughs> So what I would say is this, always, and sorry for cutting you off, always be creative. Being creative is really fun. You have to know why you're getting yourself into it. If you're getting yourself into it for the money, that's the stupidest thing in the world. You can make way more money doing other things. If I wanted to be rich, I would not be doing this. I'm saying, yeah, law school, Amazon business, like, you know, cash advance, there's so many ways to make a lot of money. If you want to be creative, you have to be creative for the love of being creative. Once you just really appreciate and love being creative, you have to know that if you want to start making money on it, it's an investment. You have to put in, basically, they say you put in between five and 10 years before you start making money being creative. It's kind of like college. You want to become a doctor, you go to school for 10 years, and then you start making money. It's not really a money-making thing, and you really have to like put in the time. Like What people say is, if you start working in creative and you have some talent, Everyone will have their opportunity. The question is, can you afford to wait long enough for your opportunity to, opportunity to arrive? And it's just really like that. It's a very, very long, slow and painful process. And even when you see success, it goes from like success to nothing so quickly. Like I, within the first year and a half, I had, I was writing for TBS Digital. I was writing for IFC Digital. I was on Jimmy Kimmel. And I got to like pitch Lionsgate twice on two different shows and almost sold like a full TV show. Then I had like another year and a half of more or less nothing. Everything fell apart. TBS Digital ended, IFC Digital ended, didn't get invited back for Jimmy Kimmel, and then like nothing. And then after a year and a half, started getting a bunch of stuff. And then like laugh, get become a regular at the Laugh Factory, and then COVID hits, and then there's nothing again. And then it just there's kind of like a crazy, crazy wave. And that's why when it comes to creative, you really have to be passionate about it or else it'll just destroy you. I'll tell you the truth. If I was in that position where like a year and a half, everything's going good and I feel good about myself and all of a sudden there's a drop for another year and a half and I'm not doing anything, I would probably give up. So it's not just being passionate about it. It's also being so passionate about it that you sort of, create this unconditional love to what it is you do because you really understand it. And it's not, again, it's not for money. It's just something deeper, something that is me. And I think this is, this goes for like everything in life. It's about like recreating yourself and, you know, finding other things to do. Like, for example, I want to be a writer and writing led me to comedy. While I didn't have that many things going for me, I would write scripts and I started my Instagram. And then I was like posting on Instagram. So like I wasn't making money off my sketches on Instagram, but I was being creative and it just felt good to be creative. And then I also launched a production company. So let's say like for right, right now, I get paid to like write scripts and work on sets and write TV and movie scripts every single day. So it's kind of like, it's like, you know what I mean? Like you get to like, you can kind of see the eye, the, you know, your eye on the prize. And like for me, when I don't have like, you know, some sort of like creative script, like movie, television, web series, whatever to work on, at least I'm getting to be on set and film a product video or be on set and film a commercial. And like, although a commercial is not a TV show, it's still kind of a creative outlet. So it might not be, it basically, 
you might not get exactly what you want. But as long as you're willing to, you know, kind of open your mind a little bit, the world's a big place. Here's a question that I actually like asking a lot of people. How do you balance between your work life and your personal life? So for me, what's kind of funny is they bleed into each other a lot. So I have my kids in my sketches. I have my wife in my sketches. I sometimes like when I have a product where I need kids, occasionally I'll use my kids for the product. Also like with my wife, she stepped in, like we had a model cancel and I needed somebody and like my wife showed up and we filmed with her. I have my wife read all my scripts and stuff. So there is a little bit of, of the balance, but like when you do what I do, it's like you're basically always working. So there's like working to support the family. Then I make sure to always take off time as long as I could, as long as I'm not on set. We have dinner together bath time together, help put the kids together. And then a lot of nights I have to go and do stand up. So I have to like, I think the, the way to balance it is to, you know, kind of have a schedule and have, you know, firm things like, okay, if, if you're going to like, you know, spend time with your kids on a certain time, don't push it off. Just commit to what you're doing. If you have a date night with your wife, don't push it off, commit to what you're doing. And I think that for Orthodox Jews, which is a beautiful, beautiful thing is we have Shabbos. So no matter how crazy the week can be, if I get booked on shows and I'm doing a show every single night, so I can't really spend that much time with my wife. And, you know, I'm on set three days that week. So I'm filming. And when I'm not filming, I have script deadlines. So I'm not spending that much time with my kids. Shabbos comes and everything's off. Shabbos comes and I'm there and they have my full attention. That's amazing. What is something that like keeps you going in like, you said throughout COVID, it was really hard getting jobs and stuff like that. What was the one thing that kept you going? Well, I'll tell you. So first off, the simple answer is coffee. But basically, COVID was the weirdest thing for me. So right before COVID, I made massive headway in stand-up comedy. But my script writing wasn't moving that much. And then I lost the comedy. And I was like, oh, I don't have anything going for me. And what happens is, because of COVID, everything stopped. So there was no production. There was no one filming. So all of these like very powerful showrunners, producers, and TV writers were all bored and on Twitter and then eventually on Clubhouse. And they were just bored. So I was lucky enough to befriend certain showrunners and producers. But again, like they weren't really doing much. Like they had like some script writing, some whatever it was, but they were kind of just sitting there. So during COVID, I was really able to get my writing on track and then because of all like the black lives matter stuff a lot of these big writers were offering to read black writers and my writing partner is a black jew so we were able to get on that train and and because of that like i was able to like meet with warner brothers twice this year and meet with sony twice this year and like there are certain showrunners like because of covid i have this jewish script concept that i now have if you google top 10 tv shows of all time like one of the shows I'm working with the showrunner. So one of the creators who created the show is now attached to my show and we're working on it and hopefully going to pitch it. So again, like COVID was kind of this weird, like inflection time and it really kind of worked out. So I, like, again, it's really sad that ever, that so many people died and so many people were sick and, you know, lost work, et cetera. But it was kind of like nice to be able to spend more time with my kids and family. Cause before then I was really busy with comedy and everything. And then on top of that, I was able to like make these great connections and I have a writing mentor. I wrote a script with him and we were able to take that out a little bit. It was kind of pretty cool. I mean, for me, COVID was so amazing because I saw what I would do if I didn't have the ability to go out. Right. Like the first week I was just binging Netflix nonstop. And then just one day I woke up and I'm like, what am I doing? I, I don't enjoy this. I mean, I love the shows. It's a lot of fun to maybe watch an episode a day, but like consistently, this is so boring. I'm not doing anything with my life. And I saw how I was able to get back up and just find something to do and just continuously do it. And I'm like, there's so many other people that had the same exact thing. And that's amazing. Awesome. Yeah. It's again, I think like, yeah, COVID definitely like changed the world and changed people's perspectives. You know, again, it was hard at the beginning, but I think overall it was better. People realized like, oh, hey, we don't need as much. Like we can make do with, you know, like being alone, being with your family. All we you need know, is toilet kind of, like, paper and so. we're fine, right? 
Except, oh, now you're going to get me started. I literally had like two friends that wanted to come for Shabbos right at the beginning of the pandemic. And I'm like, bring your own toilet paper. Like, you guys can come for Shabbos. I'll give you all the food you want. Don't even think of using my toilet paper. And of course, they forgot toilet paper. And like, this is going to sound silly. Like, and it's also a podcast you can't even see. He used this much toilet paper. This much of the role. Oh my God. And like, at the time, that was like, that was precious things. Like, I had backup plans. Like, I I bought out a bunch of baby wipes because there's no toilet paper. I'm like, plastic bag baby wipes we're gonna make it work every time like we're gonna figure it out thank the lord we didn't get to there but you know a shovel pine cones i don't know like we'll figure it out uh just very curious question did the baby wipes have an ou on it or was it just regular non-kosher baby wipes you have to stay tuned and watch the instagram to find out (laughs) like again a lot i'm not gonna give up my series ideas but yeah a lot of people do food reviews i don't think anyone's ready for this kind of food review now this is actually a bit of a turning point right now this is actually a bit comedic but as a jew in hollywood what is your opinion on certain tv shows that actually portray jews i'll just give an example actually a pretty good one that i enjoy personally marvelous mrs mazels what's your opinion on that to be honest, I'm not actually Jewish. I just sound like this. Oi, you know, what, what am I going to tell people I'm Italian? Um, no, I'm kidding. So what do I think of that? It's it's a very interesting thing because, like, on the surface, I love the Marvel Mrs. Maisel. I think it's hilarious. I think it's funny. I think they portray Jews well and very, you know, like kind of the overbearing Jewish father, the overbearing Jewish mother, this very big personality. So I really enjoyed and I really enjoyed watching it with my, with my wife. But there's a slight issue with it, which is something that I've been talking about for a long time. And then Sarah Silverman just mentioned in her podcast. I don't know if you heard about it. The issue becomes non-Jews playing Jews too well. Where it's like we live in a time right now where basically every kind of representation matters. So people are getting upset that like white people are playing Asian characters. And, you know, like there was like a movie called In the Heights where it was like about hispanic people and they were upset that there weren't afro-hispanic people which means half black half hispanic people in it because that neighborhood had half black half hispanic people so it seems like representation matters and like real people playing themselves like people are upset that like so hollywood is so over the top and crazy even though you think at a surface level acting the whole point of acting is somebody playing someone else that's the whole concept isn't somebody not being themselves but basically there is an issue where big strong jewish characters are not usually played by jews so for example the marvelous mrs mazel she is a phenomenal actress she's not jewish then you have the father great actor the person who plays her dad not jewish either in the marvel universe and like the superheroes the big characters that are jewish are magneto both times he was portrayed in the movies not jewish ben Grimm, both fantastic four movies not jewish there's a two comic book movies coming out this two comic book tv shows coming out this summer one is a comic book called she hulk which the character is jewish is played by a latino actress and the second one is moon knight in the comics moon knight's father's a rabbi moon knight's father is a practicing rabbi with a show and it's played by oscar isaacs who is not a jew so that's where the issue is so i love the show but it's weird to me but they don't really have Jews play Jews, but they're totally fine. Like everyone gets upset except when non-Jews play Jews. Actually, you know, I have realized there that like in many movies, there's like Jew jokes, right? You know, like uh, I think the first time I heard it was in Rush Hour where, where he says, uh, where's the gefilte fish? You know, something like on the flight, right? Yeah, They're all yeah. written by Jews and produced by Jews. Yeah, but but like the only people who, who actually enjoy those jokes are Jews. Like, oh, look, we're here. We're alive. See, look, people remember that we're here. Like, it's fun for us to listen to these jokes. It's it's interesting how we don't mind people making Jew jokes, even though they're not Jewish and even though they're played by not Jews. Like I, most people that I know don't mind. No, I think that like I think that we like to be included and in, in the jokes. You know, we're we're fine. Jews are fine with being the the punchline and being the butt of jokes. Um, but again, I just think that you know, kind of for me, when it comes to those shows, is it's just weird that like, so it's like a little. It's a little interesting that that happens. So that's kind of my, my only comment in that. But otherwise, like I think that people are starting to garner certain levels of interest in Orthodox Jews and Orthodox Jewish characters and Orthodox Jewish stories. So if we can keep that trend going, I feel like there are some very interesting and fun and, and unique stories that we can bring to the table. If 
you know, we can find the financing, which that is what I'm working on right now, working on with some people. We have some shows like the show that I mentioned, you know, kind of loosely based on my life and like other shows. Actually sounds awesome. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully one day we can have some, we can have some really fun shows. And, but the funny thing is a show that comes out about Orthodox Jews, even if it's pro Orthodox Jew, there are still going to be those old school people which hate it and say, how dare they make a show about Orthodox Jews? How dare they have Orthodox Jews in the show? And then they're going to be people that love it and you're not going to be able to make people happy. And that's kind of like the full circle. You just have to like, just like you have to be willing to ride, ride the waves. You have to be willing to like accept that not everyone's going to like it. Like most people like my videos. And then occasionally I'll get a DM like, how dare you make fun of, you know, Judaism yarmulkes aren't used as oven mitts. You shouldn't take a potato out of the oven with your yarmulke. And it's like, you don't have to follow me. I actually just had one question. How did you use the yarmulke as a bowl? I've been trying to do it, but the milk keeps pouring out at the bottom. Am I doing something wrong? Trick is a lot of milk. Trick is a lot. Just have the whole milk next to you. And as you're, you know, like every couple bites, you got to refill. Or I believe I keep either does or they should make a waterproof yarmulke. Hopefully we can forward it to them and have the I keep engineers get on it. Because, you know, like I'm saying for camping, having the like dual purpose yarmulke you know it just makes it just makes sense all right so i guess now that we're coming more to an end just to get a little bit more what is the best advice someone gave you that like throughout your entire career best overall advice would have to be put your underwear on before your pants and as silly as silly as that sounds it's a real it's a real thing so on the surface level it sounds like a silly thing but i think that you know like a lot of people try to they try to rush it and they try to push it, whatever it is, whether it's, you know, getting a raise from your boss or, you know, just putting something out. And you have to remember that there are certain things you can do to speed it up. Putting your pants on before your underwear won't speed up you getting out of the house. You ha- There are certain things that have to be in order. And there are certain things that you just have to, like, accept that they take time, especially, again, when it comes to being creative, especially, like, I think... You know, as, as, a, as a firm Jew, you get that. You went through yeshiva. You went through a lot. You understand that things take time and things take effort. And the best things to do, like the tree that plants that grows the strongest is the tree that starts from the seed, not the tree that you just like cut off a branch and import it. So basically, as long as you're, as long as you see the goal and you're willing to put in the time and the effort, like you can get anywhere and you can accomplish anything. 100%. Actually, I think... Yeah, like two weeks ago, I opened up a letter of the Rebbe in English, and it speaks about that. It speaks about that there's two types of planting. There's planting a seed and then planting a whole tree. And the stronger way of the tree to grow, like the stronger method, is when you plant a seed and then the tree grows. Yes, it takes way longer, but the results are way better. So sometimes when you just plant seeds, it's like, oh, why is anything growing? Like, wait, it's going to come, and when it comes, it's going to be epic. And, and I think that people forget it's like also it's not just for the tree. It's for you. You appreciate it more. If I go and I give you each $100 or if I ask you guys to do something for me and I pay you $100, you will value the $100 significantly more if I pay you 100 than if I give you 100 So like the fruits that seem to come easy, even if you can get them, they're not the fruits that you want. You like let the process happen. And it will be a better process, and you will be happier in the process. Absolutely. Wow. That was really nice. I really like that. Yeah, that was beautiful. We got to make that a bumper sticker or something. Or We should do it. T-shirts? I can see. Actually, no, sorry. In Crown Nights, you can't wear T-shirts. Button-down shirts? <laughs> or, or, or sweaters. That goes over here in New York, yeah. Because in California, you guys don't really have sweaters. Yeah, and we can also do keepas that say, I'm hiding my horns. Oh. By the way, that... It, graphic keepers people don't do gra- like even i keep it and do graphic keepers it's a good idea or we just make a keeper with actual horns so people be like nope i'm not hiding anymore we're good <laughs> check mine out it's funny I, w- I was joking with somebody and maybe eventually I, w- I would do it but it'd be really fun if let's say like i'm invited on to a premiere for a show or a movie or something or i get invited to a talk show or whatever it is and put horns on <laughs> but pretend they're not there not so one of two things, either they're just there and it, you can't see it, or it's like under my yarmulke sticking up a little bit. And like in the interview, I like fix my yarmulke and they're just there. But I don't talk about it. Like I don't acknowledge it. It's just like sticking out a little bit. 
you are going to cause such a rumble on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. Um, they're going to make but Easter the eggs. Point. They're going to like say, oh, this is Menachem's Easter egg for his new TV show about... No, no. Exactly. If you were interviewing yourself, um, what question would you good. like to ask you? And then you can answer it. It's a good question. I'm just... It's, it's funny. I'm trying to think because we've covered so many topics. Like a lot of the things that like I would have wanted to ask myself, we've already discussed, which is nice. And I can't be like, rewind to minute 123 for the answer. No, I think that the question that I would want to ask myself in an interview is, is it and was it worth it to invest this much time to get this far and yet not as far as I want to? And the answer is yes. But I think that like, you know, like we were kind of like circling back to the, the seed, planting the seed thing where you know, like it's, it's all worth it. And I think that people have to, you know, not only focus on the end and realize to appreciate every moment because like one thing that I was kind of thinking of, like I had like a, a low moment for a minute where I was like, I haven't sold my, my own television show yet. And I don't have a comedy special out. And like, I don't, you know what I mean? Like I don't have the success that I want to. And then I thought, and I was like, you know, if I, if I would have told myself, when I was, you know, 10 years old that I would be doing stand-up, you know, I'd be so proud of myself. And if I told myself that I would, you know, have written sketches for something like TBS or been on Jimmy Kimmel, I'd be so proud of myself. And like, even, you know, a, a year and a half ago, if I had told myself that I would be able to be a, a regular at the Laugh Factory, or, you know, I'd be able to work with these, you know, showrunners and producers, I would be so proud of myself. And everybody, when you make an accomplishment, you always push the flagpole you get to the certain point, you make a million dollars and you put it, I want to make $2 million. You make two, you want to make five, you want to make 10. And there's always like, you're always pushing the goals, which I think is really important. But besides for pushing the goals is like taking a step back and acknowledging it. Like, what did you want? What did you want to get here? I wanted to sell a script. I did. I wanted to, you know, be, be a regular laugh factory. I did. And believe it or not, when I was younger, I told my friend that I was going to be on Jimmy Kimmel. And my friend's like, why would you be on Jimmy Kimmel? You don't do anything. And I'm like, I don't know, but I'm going to be on Jimmy Kimmel and I was. And the first comedy show that was live that I ever saw was with this guy. His name is Jay Phillips and this comic. And I saw him on stage and I turned to my friends, the same friends that I said the Jimmy Kimmel thing to. And I said, one day I'm going to perform with this guy on stage. And they said, Menachem, you don't do anything. Like the same response. Like, you don't do anything. Like, why would you be on stage? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, I'm going to do it. And the second to last show before COVID, I performed stand up with him. And after the show, I walked over to him and I told him that. And he thought it was amazing. And, you know, like, again, like to me, I had done so many Monday nights at the Laugh Factory that to me, it was like just another show. But then when I took a step back and I looked at it, I was like, it wasn't just another show. This was like, this was the culmination of like, you know, 18 year old me's dream of performing on stage with this guy. Wow. <laughs> it's amazing. People fulfilling their dreams. It's awesome. I actually have a name for this episode dreams do come true ish. ish ish well almost yeah it's it's again it's, it's one of those things that's hard work and like i've wanted to quit so many times just because like it gets hard it gets hard and and you know like you never know and then every time something happens something good happens i'm like thank god there's just like a lot of things coming up and it's slowly getting there wow thank god all right so basically in every single episode that we're doing, at the end of it, we're asking five rapid questions. Some of them are completely meaningless. Some of them are actually really intellectual. Just answer as fast as possible. Got it? Let's go. All right. So what's your favorite pizza topping? Favorite pizza topping? I'm allergic to pizza. <laughs> I'm out of black pizza. I will die if I eat pizza. But I guess the topping is anything that's not cheese. Next. <laughs> what's your favorite book and why? What is my favorite book? The Torah, because I'm Jewish. Boom, but also a series of fortunate events because I love that book. Next. Your favorite comedian? My favorite comedian, Alive or Dead, Alive, Jerome Van Gossery and Mark Normand, and Dead, I would say Mitch Hedberg. Wow. Interesting choice. I like it, yeah. And if you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? Uh, it would be California. Oh, not bad. Where I'm living right now. Yeah, thank God. I just have a little bit of a nicer, bigger house, but the location <laughs> is the same. 
And last and final one, what is your favorite fallback joke? You said recently in the episode that you have a fallback joke always. What's your favorite go-to? So it's kind of funny, and this is a little bit of a longer answer, but I guess because it's the fifth question, I can do this. So the joke that I like just throwing at people is, I met my wife through a matchmaker. Don't judge me. Most of you guys have been on Tinder. Dating through a matchmaker is like dating through Tinder, except every time you swipe right, your parents get a notification. So that's my favorite throw-to joke because it just always gets a laugh. It's always silly, but it also depends on where I am in the set. So if I'm towards the beginning of the set, I can throw it to that. If I'm at the end of the set and I realize that like things are falling apart, I have a, a joke about God and Abraham speaking for the first time and deciding to make a covenant. And I also have a joke about life insurance. And those three are the jokes that I'll throw things down. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so thank much you. for joining us, Menachem. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. You guys can find Menachem on Instagram and Twitter. 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 And where else? Menachem Silverstein on Instagram. Menachem Silver on Twitter because they don't let you um, do more than silver because they hate Jews with long last names, I guess. And TikTok Menachem S. Awesome. I know it's confusing. And where can they find you? Well, I guess if they're here, they found you. They found us. Yeah. <laughs> they found us already. We're, we're yeah. All right. We, we can't hide anymore. That's a wrap. Nachum, thank you so much for joining I us. I feel like that. Thank you so much for having me. This has been amazing. Awesome.